Thank you, Bill, for asking me uh, to do this. This is just such a privilege. I'm so honored, you know, to be able to represent, you know, a meeting of alcoholics and moms. I've been continuously sober for 5,989 days today, one day at a time. That's uh, a little over 16 years. My sobriety date is January the 3rd of 1995. And it is... Don't give me any credit, I just showed up. <laughs> um, my home group is the Aldale Group, uh, across the river from, uh, from Bakersfield, California. It's been my home group uh, since I finally surrendered to my disease of alcoholism. It is not, however, my first sobriety. My very first sobriety day was on or about May the 5th of 1990. I came in here from the floors of the tore ups on the floor. I said, I came in from the rooms of the tore ups on the floor. You know, and I tell you, I, I can only t- say about that, you know, is that I'm also a grateful member of Narcotics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, and Al Anonymous. You know, and uh, without these rooms, I guarantee you, you know, I would be clinically insane, more than likely in a penitentiary or dead. And the only reason I know that is is because on my journey getting here, I nearly came within moments of being toe-tagged. <clears throat> Somewhere on or about the middle of the month of December of 1994, I had been in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for about four and a half years. You know, trying to prove to myself that I was not a, an alcoholic. You see, to be an alcoholic, you know, you gotta be in the gutter. You gotta live on the street. You know, you gotta not show up for work. You gotta be on some social system or some, something. You know, anything, anything but what I was. You know, I've been amply employed, you know, since the, uh, 26th of November of 1971 of the employee of now Union Pacific Railroad. Hopefully in November I will have the privilege and the honor of being able to retire with 40 years of, of employment. All because of the grateful God that I came to find in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And it like this and people like you. So it's helped me to stay sober one day at a time. You know, I don't like to get into controversy. I'm not here to tell you anything, because I really don't know anything. I guarantee you that it took away all my sharp temples. I'm a few french fries short of a Happy Meal. And I didn't get all my colors in my Crayola box, and I want them back. I can tell you that, you know, if you're an alcoholic of the kind that Bill Wilson talks about in the big book, meaning that you're powerless. If you don't understand what powerless is, just imagine this. If you find that you can't stop doing something that you know you don't want to keep on doing, and you're unable to do that, or if you're unable to completely stop and walk away from doing it, regardless of what it is, that's powerless. I've been that way since August the 24th of 1960. That was my ninth birthday. When I think about how it started in my life, you know, I start thinking about, you know, this party that was going on in our neighborhood. It was all over kids. 
And ever since I was a little runt, you know, I've been hanging around with people older than me. I just couldn't ever hang with kids of my own age. And uh, and I tried to talk my way into that party, and they finally told me, so well, this is an assault party. We're going to be drinking alcohol. And I said, well, that's no problem. Both my mom and dad drink. You know, and I turned right around, and I ran home, and I looked around to make sure nobody was home. And I ran in the pantry, and I got one of my mom's mason jars, because she used to do home preserves. And I took that lid off of that thing, and I grabbed my dad's overtime bottle, and I started pouring it in, and I put the cap back on, and I put it back. And then I grabbed my mom's gin, and I poured it on top of that, and I put the cap back on. And then there was this beautiful little green bottle called Cream Net. I have no idea what people do with it, but I paid them drink it, and I put it in there. And by the time I showed up at that party, I, hold, I held up a can of oil. <laughs> and that's exactly what it looked like. You know, and, um, you know, and they uh, said, uh, well, you qualify. And they opened it up and didn't know what it was, but they knew it was alcohol. And they said, well, the good news is you can stay. You know, and you're going to drink it. And I said, I plan to. And they said, no, right now. You know, and unfortunately, being nine years old, I didn't know any better. But I do remember what happened to me on the very first date. <laughs> I spit it out. <laughs> And they said, no, you're missing the point here. You have to drink all of that, you know. And then some girl came over with a with a bottle of Coca-Cola. They didn't have cans yet. And they poured it down there in that thing, you know, and mixed it up. And I drank it. And, you know, it didn't taste too bad. You know, and I tell you what, what happened to me over the next 15 minutes was the most amazing transition a nine-year-old ever felt. It also turned into the worst nightmare a nine-year-old ever felt. You know, and I went through every stage of alcohol, of alcohol abuse, you know, that, that a human being goes through, you know. I drank much more than my body could contain at one time, you know. I got to see parts of, parts of the atmosphere that I had never known before. And, um, and then I got to revisit everything I drank. And it didn't stop doing that until January the 3rd, 1995. And in the middle of the month of December, I somehow uh, wandered into Mercy Mercy Hospital. Because one of my friends pointed out to me in, amidst, um, uh, amidst uh, my drinking on that particular time, and uh, noticed that, you know, um, as I was outside, you know, talking to Ralph, <laughs> You know, they noticed something a little bit different, you know, this time, you know, and it looked like blood. And um, I said, well, damn, somebody's got to drive me to the hospital. And they said, go west, young man, go west. And uh, somehow I ended up at, uh, at Mercy Hospital. And when they found me, I was laying in the uh, reception room, laying right next to the door where they opened it up from the emergency and uh, had to shove my body out of the way, I guess. And they brought me in and started working on me and uh, found out that I had uh, ruptured a blood vessel in my esophagus. And they did an endoscopy and tried to put me back together. And, and, and amongst all that process, you know, evidently my heart got a little bit excited and whatnot. And they hit me a couple of times. And, you know, at one point, you know, they thought they had lost me. And, um, and the only reason I know this part of my story is because about six days later, when I came out of what I thought was another blackout, 
doctor convinced me, you know, you've been in a coma for six days. And, uh, and of course, I couldn't talk because I got tubes in here and tubes over there and big tubes down there. And, <laughs> you know, and uh, and he's standing over my bed explaining to me that you realize when by the time we got the toxicology report on you, you were a .389? And so, you know, and I shook my head and they said, do you realize that people start dying up above a point two seven? These were all wonderful facts, but they didn't mean a damn thing to me. You know, and uh, he told me that I walked in there with no money, no car keys, no ID, nothing to even show who I was. I was summer, I mean, it was in the winter time, and I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Go figure. And, um... I somehow figured, you know, that, uh, you know, it looks like it's time for me to look oh. And I waited until they changed shifts about midnight, and I walked right out of the place with one of them trap door down, and walked all the way home, you know. And I'm still pissed off to this day, because about three cops went by me, and not one of them offered to give me a ride. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I, and I kind of went through that, that mental exercise that, you know, the people of my kind go through, and and start, because I've already been around the room today, and I've already been around you. You've already told me some of your stories. You know, um, I've read a couple of things, or overheard a couple of things, and several of them were read this evening, you know, and I had a difficult time trying to relate to any of that. You know, I had uh, gone through uh, a nice size estate that if, if properly managed, you know, I probably would have been a very wealthy man, but that I got real real familiar with the guy down down the street, you know, and then I got real, real familiar with some people in Florida, you know, and as a result of that, I got real, real familiar with places that have things like this, saying, no contest, Your Honor. Uh, if you've been through the system and whatnot, you know, you you can probably relate to something. You know, all I know is, is that, uh, you know, I don't have any sinuses left from my, some of my actions. You know, I still have the wreckage of this. I still have to go on a on a medication to keep my esophagus from erupting. You know, I'll be doing that, you know, for the rest of my life. You know, all because, you know, I love to drink drugs. I, um, I started doing something different, you know, um, when I came to... <laughs> On January the 3rd in 1995, because my last remembrance was, was New Year's Eve of, uh, December the 31st in 1994. And I remember standing there talking to my then girlfriend and telling her, you know, I think this is going to be my last drink. You know, it's only one of them big chimney glasses of Long Island iced tea. And, um, she says, thank God, <laughs> you're an asshole when you drink. Shit, I thought I was a sweet little guy. But, um, but when I came to, I was sitting in Guthrie's Alley Cat Saloon, if anybody's ever been to Vegas. You know, and, and I came to looking at a mirror. On one side was the cash register, and on the other side were the glasses, you know, that they make the drinks in. And I was staring at the most hideous, ugly, and awful monster of the world. And my eyes focused, and I realized it was me. And I didn't know what to do. I had five drinks in front of me, and my hand was already on the third one. I had a total of $48 in my net worth, because like I said, you know, 
I used and abused to the point to where, you know, I lost literally everything. I was one friend away from homelessness at that point. And I couldn't even remember if I had even worked enough in the month of December, you know, to even have a paycheck on the phone. That feeling of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization came over. And it stood at that starting point, book talk. Uh, I didn't know which way I was going to go. You know, and, and I do recall that somebody had left a quarter tip off to the side of me. And I don't know why, but for some reason that quarter was talking to me. Kind of like that Field of Dreams, you know, movie that Kevin Costner made, you know, calling to be there. You know, and this phone number just kept going through my mind. And I couldn't figure out, you know, what, you know, what it was. And then suddenly down on me, it was my first sponsor. You know, and I don't know why, but for some reason I somehow realized that it was Tuesday morning on that on that particular day. I realized it was 9 a.m. Why not give old Ralph a call? Well, his job is 15 miles across town. There's no chance in the world of him ever answering the phone. I thought I'd just kind of check in with him and say hi. And that was just one of one of the first of many God shots in my life, because on the third, third ring, Ralph answered the phone. And I said, Ralph? Yeah? What are you doing? Huh? PK? Yeah. I guess it's here for you when you finally got ready. You know, Ralph doesn't remember the story. I don't know if that's the truth or not, but it sounds goddamn good. <laughs> what I can tell you about that is, is that for the first time in my life, somebody, you know, gave me the best unconditional love there is. He told me, you know, that listen, you son of a bitch. From now on, we're taking the word suggestion completely out of your vocabulary. We're going to put direction back in your, in your life. And if you don't like it, you can just go F yourself and die. Because I am through worrying about you. And I got me right here. Well, for a minute. You know, and, um, and he told me exactly what I was going to do. And he told me to finish what I was doing, you know, leave my car there, get a cab of that $48, and he'd come by my house and pick me up. And I tried to convince him, and, you know, and as soon as I opened up my mouth, you know, being the good sponsor that he was, he told me to shut the up. I don't want to hear anymore your bright idea. Do what I told you to do when I tell you to do it. Or again, you can go, go and die. You know, and for 5,989 days, you know, things have changed. You know, I don't know how things change in your life, but I do know that because I was desperate, because I had run the gambit, because I had not only put my job on the line several times, you know, with my actions, you know, there was a real good possibility to catch me one more time, you know, in my entire career, my whole entire life, as I understood it was going to be over. And that still wasn't enough to stop me. So what was it? What was it, you know, that was happening at that particular moment in time that made me want to have what you guys got? Was it the big book? I can't say. I hadn't read it. Was it these rooms? 
I've been hanging around people like you all my life. You know, there wasn't anything different than that. Hell, some of you were better even inside the bar. <laughs> yeah. But something happened on the inside of me, you know, to, to where I honestly feel in my heart, you know, that I really wanted something that, you know, that some of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous that I had met over the years had. You know, my beautiful friend Nancy from Central Office, you know, who, who literally smoked herself to the point to where she had to, you know, go to work at the Central Office in an oxygen bottle, you know, used to suck me down and pat me on the head and tell me how good it was going to be. You know, and I'd go out of there with a whole lot of hope, you know, and I'd do what I do as soon as I turn the corner. You know, because, see, I'm a liar, I'm a cheat, I'm a thief, I'm a con. You know, I rob people of, of their dignity. I steal from their hearts, and I give absolutely nothing back. You know, because, see, it's all about pride. What Clyde needs, what Clyde wants, you know, I'm a taker. I'm not a giver. I robbed her. I don't care what happened. You know, lock me up. Okay, I've been locked up. I've been in plenty black and white packages. I've, I've worn enough sets of stainless steel jewelry, you know, feet and ankles and waistbands and wore orange, blue, you know. And none of those places ever scared me. Not even Bubba. I got to show with a, with a guy one time, you know, and told me, Hi, sweetheart, how are you doing today? I did Bubba with everything I could the first time he went to sleep. He the living crap out of him to let him know. And he was fucking sweetheart. Because I knew he would swim, swim or die. One of the other. You know, and I don't come from that kind of a background. I came from a wonderful, beautiful home. You know, my mom and dad were great people. Yeah, they were drinkers. You know? Unfortunately, you know, my mom had the same disease that I have. And, uh, and try as I must, as much as I try, you know, there was just nothing I could ever do, you know, to, to get her to put that drink down and today I know why. You know? No human power could relieve us of our alcohol. No human power can relieve me of my drug addiction. No human power can relieve me of all those sick thoughts that run around the side of my head. I finally came to the point in time, you know, where I started listening to Ralph, you know, in a completely different way because, you know, I knew that if I didn't, you know, I was going to die. You know, death had been so close to me on so many occasions for one reason or another, you know, I didn't really think it really bothered me all that much. But for some reason, at that point in time, I had the honest desire not to die. And an honest desire and a willingness, you know, to try and do something different in my life that actually made made something out of Clyde George. That actually brought something back to me, you know, to which I'd always been looking for, and that was that feeling of my youth when I was just a little kid, when I was running free and having the time of my life. Since I was nine years old, that all went away. I'm one thought away from my next penitentiary or the graveyard. I'm one action away from my disease, disease of alcoholism. And I guarantee you, if you're anything like me tonight, you probably understand. But what's it going to take? What's it honestly going to take to get us over that bridge to the promised land? Big book talks. For you, 
don't have a clue. You know what it is for me? For me, it's happiness, joyousness, and freedom. For me, it's the ability to be able to live my life comfortable in my own skin. For me, it is to have the opportunity to realize that through Alcoholics Anonymous, if I need to, I can go back to school and I can accomplish. And I can become anything I want to be. For me, I can go out there and be employable. I can get my driver's license back. I can get insurance, finally. I can actually pay for my tags without having to steal them. <laughs> and Alcoholics Anonymous in these rooms and people like you have taught me, you know, through, through example, you know, how to do that. You know, but I had to learn how not to be that crook. How not to con people. How not to lie to them. How, how not to do the things that I just do naturally. You know. I mean, when I came in here, my hair was, and I had hair. My hair was down below my shoulders, you know. I Everything I had was tore up in one way or another, and it was usually dirty. You know, and, uh, and that was the first thing Ralph said you're going to do. From now on, you're going to throw away all that crap. You're going to start looking like a human being. You're going to get a haircut, and you're going to shave. And you're going to start acting like a human being. Instead of an animal. See, because I'm an animal. You know, I pray. I wait for you to be able to turn. Just give me that one little chance, you know, to take advantage. I'll go like anonymous who told me that I don't have to do this. I'm not carrying a knife or a gun tonight. Big improvement for a guy like me. So that's the way I came in here. Actually, I came in here with three knives and two guns. I had a Derringer in my left boot, and I had my 9mm in my back pocket. I had a switchblade in my left pocket, and I had two little hold, holding uh, buck knives you know, in my other pocket and one on my hip. You know, and I don't wear those things anymore. You know, it's all because of alcoholics and on. I, um, I got deeply involved through Ralph, you know, by doing the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous the way it was written in the book. You know, he didn't allow me to write any bullshit story that I had been writing before about all the stuff that I know about myself from the time I was nine years old until that particular day, which was absolutely worthless information. And the reason why is because I already knew it. It served no purpose. None whatsoever. It's a great story at the podium, but for sobriety it's absolutely nothing. So after we worked our first three steps, and I got to the point to where I understood, you know, why I'm powerless and why my life is a man. The insanity of my disease is not all the crazy GF things that I do when I'm drunk. It's more to the fact of knowing, you know, that I'm spiritually bankrupt, that I don't have somebody else's way of life. I'm depending completely on quiet. I'm doing everything my way. It's also that other form of insanity, you know, to where I keep on doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting it to be different. You know? I've, um, I've, I've come to believe, you know, that there is a power in the universe, you know, and it isn't Clyde George. I don't know if it's you. I don't know if it's this fellowship or anything else or that book for that matter. I do know that if you just go to meetings, you know, and expect to get sobriety, you know, you're a dead person. That's what I do know. Then why do we come to meetings? The reason why is because we come here to listen to old times. We come in here to listen from their experience, strength, and hope. 
to tell us about how the steps work and what they're all about. To grow, to learn how to go to book studies instead of sitting there jumping on a, on a cookie hole or a sucker or some damn thing, occupying ourselves with all the weird stuff all over the room. You know, because if you're not desperate, that's exactly what you're doing right now. You know? I'm sorry, but that's it. The bottom line of it is, is that this program is a program of attraction. You know? If I don't sound like I've got anything to offer you, you know, you're just going to go out and walk out that door. It doesn't matter if it's me, if it's Grass, or Tina, or Bill, or anybody else for that matter. You gotta find something. In the, deep down inside of your heart, I believe, you know, it's gonna give you that freedom from bondage. It's gonna allow you to be able to become something that you will respect. Because I don't know about you, I damn near cut my throat every day because of the way I felt about myself. There were times that I wanted to be dead more than I wanted to be alive because I was just a miserable human being. You know, and today, you know, I, uh, I've come to believe that there's a power greater than myself, and I willingly turn my will and my life over the care of God as I understand it, because today I understand it wasn't the apple that was the problem. It was selfishness and self-sin. God wants my will, right? And He wants the, He wants things of me, you know, to become the best that I can be. Because everybody has a contribution to, to either society, or to our family, you know, to ourselves. We're good people. We're articulate. We're smart. We're intelligent. We've learned how to survive, for Christ's sake. I mean, you, you show me anybody who's out there living on the street that doesn't have a job, how in the world they can, you know, run to the man, you know, and get the bag, or how they can get down there to the five and dime, you know, and get a can you know, and do that on a day-to-day basis and live, that's articulate. Unfortunately, it's an articulation, you know, that will lead you to the gate of insanity or death because it robs you of everything. It robs you of your self-esteem. It robs you of your, of your relationships, both personal and sexual. It robs you of your ambitions and your securities basic instincts of life that all human beings have. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's what we commit to paper. And we begin to do step four. We identify the person that we resent. We identify what it is to take in. And then we identify, you know, what area of our lives are those basic instincts, you know, to which they appropriately affect. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, we go a little bit further. We look back in the book and it says, you know, looking back at the book again, we see where, where our lives, you know, have somehow preceded some of these actions that we are blaming people for. And we look to see where it was our fault. I guarantee you, by the time I got through all 67 of those names, you know, every one of them had, I had an action in. There was something that I had done to them, you know, and I didn't understand what it was. And I got to the fifth column and I began to identify you know, some some of my selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightening, inconsiderate ways. What? Cheated. Stole. But what were those things? Uh, I think there's a reason why Bill Wilson expanded the fourth four, four step in the in the twelve and twelve, and he began to start to talk about the uh, about the seven deadly sins. 
don't know about you, but pride is one of my biggest benefactors. You know, I wear it on my shoulder. I dare you to try to knock it off. You know, don't you know who I is? And once I got all that on paper and I did that in four different steps, I did my resentments, I did my fears, I did my sexual harm, and I did my harm rather than sex, and we got those things together and we put them all across and we looked at them. The amazing part was is that when I got to those fourth and fifth columns, all of a sudden I started seeing some similarities. I started seeing some actual things in my life that I did not know about myself. You know, those things that I've been talking about tonight. And he asked me, what are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. He said, well, we're going to get down on our knees. You know, we're going to do a third step prayer. We're going to ask God, you know, to relieve And that's what we did. And we went through it and started doing the fifth step. We started examining all those things. We started looking at everything and getting it down to the nitty-gritty, you know, to where, you know, I began to seek, you know, where my alignment was out of God's alignment. I began to do step six. I began to start putting all those names together and started trying to figure out, you know, what could I let go of and what couldn't I? Because I knew there were some things on there I probably couldn't let go right then and there. But I became willing. We did step seven and step seven and step there. We took that list again and we got all the names of all the people and I found out all the people because it says wherever, not whenever. That means I gotta seek out. That means I have to actually take the initiative and I gotta go out and I gotta try and find these people. Unfortunately for me, all but three were, I was able to make a, a direct into. The other three were, unfortunately, gone. But the Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me is to be able to set my life back into motion to where I'm participating. And I'm beginning to become more self-aware, you know, of how good a person I really am. Because I can be really, really mean to myself. I can hold myself in contempt very easily. Little by little I have found that by the time I got through step nine, those twelve promises, which, which believe me, ladies and gentlemen, I had nothing against people having a, a wonderful feeling about the twelve promises, but the bad news is you're missing the other 197. Because that entire book is filled with promises. Hell, the first one I ever read was in the first quarter of the big book. And it said, we, of Alcoholics Anonymous, more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. That's a promise. They had a process. They had an idea, and they put it into action, and it worked. You know, I don't know if anybody knows this or not, but in those first 15 years, they had discovered, you know, that they had a 75% success rate. And you find that in the second part that they wrote, when they rewrote the book. But what was it based on? Was it based on meetings? They didn't have meetings back then. They might have maybe one, maybe two, you know, in most areas when this thing first started. The actual recovery of Alcoholics Anonymous is in the big book. It is not in this meeting, it is not through me, and it is not through your sponsor. Then why do we need it? We've been in contact with one another and with newcomers is the bright spot of our lives, according to Bill Wilson. 
working with one another and helping one another and dragging somebody along, you know, when they don't want to go, you know, that's service work. You know, if you're living in a home and somebody's got their laundry and they're sick or whatnot, and you go do their laundry for them, you've been a service for them. And you've helped another person in need. There are so many little tiny things that we overlook sometimes, you know, about service work. We begin to think it's like, like my friend back here and myself, you know, are active in H&I. We think we've got to go into the institution. And that's not the only place to be of service. We have area assemblies. We have GSOs and GSRs. We have all kinds of things to donate our time to. The reason why we have an equilateral triangle in our, in our fellowship is because the three things are inseparable. If you're stuck in recovery, you know, you're, two, you're two-thirds dead. Because if recovery is all you have, you have nothing. You're never going to be anything. You're never going to go anywhere. I've seen it happen. i got 48 different sobriety chips. I know a little bit about it. And it's because I work clients with none of them. Oh, maybe you have to do that, but I don't. I, um, I only have a few minutes left. I just want to tell you that where my life is today is not in maintenance. There is no such thing as maintenance. I hear that word all the time. And I've heard greater speakers than myself, you know, and I'm not one. Believe me. And told me, you know, that if you think you're going to maintain anything, you're not moving forward. And this is all about a spiritual progression, not a spiritual perfection. The whole issue in here is all about a spiritual awakening. Since I've been here, I've had probably a half a dozen spiritual experiences. And the best one I'd like to share. Some years ago, my aunt, my mom's sister, who was dying of terminal uh, liver cancer. She never smoked, never drank a day in her life. She was 94 years old. She had been down sick for six months and never told anything. And nobody suspected anything because she was healthy as not. And then she started feeling bad and she finally let the secret out. And I got the phone call and I got on a plane and I went back to Texas. And while I was on the plane, she slipped into a coma. You know, next to my mom, she was the most wonderful human being in my life. And what happened was, is I did stuff with her. I told her all the things that I swore I would never tell. Anybody else but my father. And I asked her to do But I asked her to give my mom a hug. Because the disease killed my mom, the the person I hated. And about the time I asked her for the forgiveness and whatnot, all of a sudden I felt a pressure on my hand. And it was very sweet. Scared the little crap on me, is what it is. <laughs> you know, and I thought maybe she was with us. And it turned out she wasn't. What I've understood now is that God gave her the grace, you know, to tell me it was going to be okay, but that's sweet. I know God's here. I know He was in this room. And I know he's inviting each one of you if you'll let him. Thank you.